Hello, bienvenido, and welcome. My name is Annette Perel. I'm a proud Afro-Latina of Panamanian descent and a doula for over 17 years and mom of a son. I created this podcast to help connect people to other Black, Latino, and Indigenous people in the birth field. I also want my listeners to hear birth stories directly from the parents who experience them. Welcome to the Clear Birth Podcast. The way that you treat women and the way that we treat Black communities, Indigenous communities, is the way that we treat Earth, right? It's like on Earth, we're like always extracting resources for our benefit and always taking, taking, taking and not necessarily giving back. You know, before you even continue to take from our communities, what is there in your own lineage? Because we're, we all give birth, right? White people give birth, Black people have been giving birth, everyone in the world gives birth. Today I'm interviewing Monse Olmos, a doula of Mexican descent. She talks about the traditions and customs around birth, and we talk about the practices that are specific to the Mexican culture and the appropriation of those traditions. I love her so much because of her spiritual connection to birth and community. Okay, Monse, I want to welcome you to the show. Thanks for being here. We're ready to start. So I'm going to start with our first question. So what career did you want to do when you were in grade school, high school, and college? I definitely wanted to be an artist. And I'm still an artist today. Uh, but I wanted to study like painting and graphic design. Oh. Also um, anthropology and political science. And I did give all of that a try. Uh-huh. And then realized that it wasn't really for me. <laughs> so what what was it about it that wasn't for you? The art, you're still an artist today, you said. So it was mm-hmm. the more anthropology side of it? Um, I think it was college in general. I gave college a try uh, for one year. And for the second year, I just audited a bunch of classes. Like mm-hmm. I went for free. Yeah. And the system in itself wasn't for me. I, there was a lot of things I couldn't figure out or didn't understand how they worked. Um, and then the content in itself too. I remember mm-hmm. learning in anthropology classes, in uh, cultural anthropology classes, is that, you know, the, the Aztecs, quote unquote, were savages and that the Taino people were like extinct. Yes. And no longer existed. And when I heard all of that, I was like, no, this is not for me. This is this is not okay. So I dropped out and started doing whatever else I wanted to do. What college? Where did you go to college? Uh, University of Houston. Okay. In Texas. Oh, in Texas. Okay. Yeah. That it is incredible how the erasure starts and continues all throughout um, your your learning or rather unlearning, right? And so what did you do after that? After that, I began working at this local cafe that was also, uh, it's still open today in Houston in the east side, Eastwood is the neighborhood. It's called Bohemios. And it's an awesome place because it was opened by this Chicano couple. Mm-hmm from Houston. And it was an arts venue, uh, music venue, cafe, um, gallery. There was just always a lot of cultural events going on there. And it was like my dream place because it was 
also sort of like my safe place. Yes. So I really wanted to work there and I worked there for about a year and I learned a lot about just like art and music and culture and, mm-hmm. you know, um, my own history, my own culture. Um, so that was definitely a place where I, I started sort of growing up. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And then right before, so you did that up until right before you learned about becoming a doula or how did that manifest? So when I was working at Bohemios, I met my husband, mm-hmm. um, who's now the person who's now my husband. And he was performing there. He was living in New York at the time. And he was on tour with his band. He's a musician of traditional Mexican music. Mm-hmm. And he was performing at the South by Southwest in Austin. So they stopped by Bohemios for a, for a show, a performance that they had there. And we met. And two weeks later, I was in New York living with him. Wow. So it was like really quick, uh-huh. really just sort of an impulse. Yeah. Um, but it was my intuition, you know, yes. who was mm-hmm. like directly. Mm-hmm. When you way. know, you know. When you know, you know. Yeah. So I came to New York and I began uh, learning about traditional Mexican music with him. Mm-hmm. So I began per- performing. And then I also, but more like in a community te- uh, context. Yes. And I also began um, learning about ceremonial dancing um, because he's also a dancer. So I began doing all of that with him. And I was working at this high-end coffee shop called O Cafe in the West Village on 6th Avenue and 12th Street. And I began learning about like coffee, just the Mm -hmm. world of coffee, Mm -hmm. like on a very like, um, professional level. I was like this fancy barista and <laughs> I was making coffees for like movie stars and yeah. TV stars and yeah. like famous people. Uh, and I really loved that job. I really did enjoy it because I learned a lot about uh, plants and food, like good food, mm-hmm. um, healthy food and coffee. Um, and that's what I was doing right before I got pregnant. And then later on decided to become a doula. So how did you first hear about doulas or is it something you knew all before getting pregnant so no i didn't know about doulas Mm -hmm. before getting pregnant i met a lot of women in the ceremonial dance community and music community that i became a part of Mm -hmm. uh, friends of my husband basically who were doulas and who were teaching me about birth and about just anything related to childbearing. And when I became pregnant with my first daughter, one of them was my doula. I asked a friend to become a doula for me. And after my first daughter, um, a lot of them, a lot of my friends and sisters from the community encouraged me to to become a doula mm-hmm. and to become a lactation counselor. Mm-hmm. So I was like, okay, I guess there's something here. And also one of them, who's a very dear friend of mine, invited me to be a doula at her birth. Okay. Um, and I had no idea that I was being invited into the space, like as a support person, mm-hmm. right? Um, I just figured she likes me and she feels good around me. Yeah. So she wants me there. So I showed up and I, ended up being a support person, ended up being a doula. And I remember one of the 
one of our friends who was a doula uh, told me, so are you ready to be a doula? Like, you're going to do this, right? You're doing this. And I was like, what? What is that? Like, what are you talking about? Uh-huh. And that's where the conversation started, really. Um, but I want to say that even before knowing the word doula, doula yes. or doulaing as a service mm-hmm. or as a job, mm-hmm. um, my family knew about it. Yes. Like, for example, my grandma has been an uninformal doula for a lot of people yes. in our family and in our community. And my cousins have done the same for each other. Yeah. And my tias have done the same thing for each other. Yeah. So we just don't know it as doula. Doula, exactly. <laughs> I often yeah. I often tell a lot of my clients, so it's like there was, we were in community before, right? Because when mm-hmm. they ask about the traditional sense of a doula, it was like, it didn't have that name. It was, we lived close to our aunt, our grandmothers, and we heard birth stories and we knew about birth and we knew what to do because we were a part of the birth. Like we were there or seeing a woman in labor wasn't something that was foreign. It was once we started moving apart from our family and out into the world that it became something separate. So, and, and as, as you mentioned, your, your, grandmother was an unofficial doula. My grandmother was like a midwife, so to speak, a community kind of healer in that respect. And I remember when I was living with her when I was young, the first time someone came over to get their child's ears pierced. Mm-hmm. And the mother didn't want to hold the child and the father didn't want to hold the child while it happened. And I loved babies. And I was like, I'll hold the baby, not realizing what was about to happen. And then yeah. as my grandmother came with the hot needle and the cork, and I was just like, I can't drop this child. <laughs> and I have to stand here and witness this. And then realize, like my grandmother said, you know, that's how your ears were pierced. And, you know, the whole tradition of putting the string through it so it wouldn't close. And that was officially like the start of learning about community was through my grandmother as well. So yeah, you're right. There was always this big community. It just didn't have this word. Although there's like some, you know, controversy, a lot of controversy around the word doula, right? Because of, of the Greek, so to speak, meaning of it, which traditionally they said means slave. Um, yes. Yeah. But I met with, uh, I remember I, I met with this woman and she, we were talking about doula and she said, um, she was Muslim and she said, you know, Abdullah, Abdu, like the Abdullah Ablangara, right? Which is part of if you're in your brain. And she goes, but Abdullah means of God. So I always was like, oh, I like that meaning way more than, yes, way better than a slave. Um, but yeah, so then when you, who did you take your training with and where did you start training? Um, I trained with ancient song doula services. Mm-hmm. And I do want to say that now I found out that I can call myself something different. Yes. <laughs> so I usually describe myself as a traditional birth companion. Yes. A traditional birth attendant, mm-hmm. right? We don't have to stick to just doula. We can like yes. make it something else. Um, so yes, I studied with Ancient Song Doula Services with Chanel and Patricia. Mm-hmm. They were our trainers. Mm-hmm. And they do a lot of amazing things for the community. Their work is very well known. Definitely. And I remember it was like, 
an opening into a whole new world. Um, like I knew about herbs and birth from like stories in my family, mm -hmm. but I had never heard about it in such a way of like, um, like all the physiological processes and like supporting someone in a hospital and abortion and all these different scenarios, yeah. um, infant loss, stillbirth, all of that. So I really loved my training because also it was focused around, uh, it had a, it had a social justice lens yes. to it. Yes. And so, yeah. And I remember they were, they were um, white people in the training and, you know, some of them were unpacking stuff, you know, like yeah. their own privileges mm -hmm. and shame and guilt around being white and like supporting people from communities of color. Yeah. Um, and Chanel and Patricia were actually very good about um, creating a, a safer space for that to happen. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, I really love my training. So what surprised you about the social justice aspect of the training? I didn't know. I was not aware that um, when it came to women of color, specifically mm -hmm. black women, mm -hmm. that there was a really high rate of infant mortality mm -hmm. and um, maternal mortality. Yeah. And so I learned that in the training and it just hit me like, oh shit, you know, we, we have a big problem. Yes. We have a huge problem in mm -hmm. our hands. And not only that, but when I began assisting uh, people giving birth, my first five births were either like undocumented migrants or Afro-Caribbean women um, who were like in very precarious situations. Mm -hmm. They were either in shelters or in abusive relationships Uh, or battling custody for other children with the court, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And the way that they were treated, yeah. you know, the, the things that I witnessed as a new doula, as mm -hmm. a newborn doula, like, yes. you know, first birth were like deeply traumatic. Mm -hmm. And so the fact that at Ancient Song, they were teaching us how to be advocates and how to um, recognize what was, what basically counted as obstetric, theatrical abuse yeah. um, and how to be a, a witness for your client, but at the same time, help them maintain their dignity yes. and help them use their voice um, to protect themselves and their bodies and their babies. Mm -hmm. um, I think that's what I love the most about, about that training. Yeah. And so having assisted your your first five births and having had that experience, what did you find was most shocking about the the way women were treat these women were treated in the hospital and how did you help advocate for them? Um I would say the most shocking thing I saw is how quick doctors were to um, push um, sterilization on women. Oh, wow. Right? Okay. So, like, my very first hospital birth as a doula, um, my client was birthing their, I believe, eighth baby. Mm -hmm. It was her eighth baby. And she was living in a shelter and was fighting custody for other children, et cetera. Some kids, some of the children were in foster care. Um And the doctors were, and this was in the Bronx, the doctors were just like really, really pushing like for her to have a um, 
I can't think of the word right now in English. Either a hysterectomy or her tube side? Okay. A hysterectomy, Mm -hmm. yes. Um, And she just didn't want to. And they were giving her all the reasons why and just kept pushing and pushing and pushing. And several times she said, I don't want to do it. No, thank you. I don't want to. And they were like, well, you're right here. Like, we might as well do it, you know? (sighs) And I remember um, a lot of things started coming up for me. Mm -hmm. Right. Because I had heard of stories like that in my family as well. I have tias who were either um, forcibly sterilized. Like they didn't even know that it happened Mm -hmm. until years later when they couldn't have kids. They would like go to the doctor and start investigating and they found that they didn't have a uterus anymore. Um, So I knew of that already happening in my family and it like came up for me. Mm -hmm. Right. So that was definitely like a wound that I didn't know I had and that I had never like looked into or taken care of. So I had to like take a moment to like regulate myself and like check in with myself first. Um, Because yeah, for a moment there, I was no longer available to to my client. Right. Because then I was going through my own stuff. Yes. Mm -hmm. And I remember um, crying. I cried at that birth. I cried so hard. I mean, my client didn't realize, mm-hmm. um, but I, I stepped out and I cried really, really hard and just really sadly for what I was witnessing and for realizing that it wasn't just my tia who went through that, but it was like happening all around, yeah. right? Like other women were going through it. And so it really did wake me up to the situation. And so I remember I walked in into the room, like feeling better, feeling more relieved. I had like let go. Mm-hmm. I had released. And I talked to my client and I said to her, like, you know, no one can force you to do what something that you don't want to do yeah. with your body. No one, not even mm-hmm. a doctor. Mm-hmm. Like it doesn't matter that they are doctors. They don't know everything and they cannot force you to do something that you yeah. don't want to. Yeah. Um, so it's really, it's up to you. And if you don't, want to have this, this surgery, like I'm here to also let them know that you don't want this. Mm -hmm. And so it was me and also her sister who was there. And we both became like her advocates at that moment. And she didn't have, she didn't have the, the, the hysterectomy, but yeah, it was definitely a fight with the medical staff. Because it was nurses and the doctor just like pushing, pushing, pushing for it. And, you know, I know that in their mind, it was like, you know, why do you want to, they, they were not saying it with these words, but they were implying like, why do you want to keep having children? If like, you know, your children are in foster care yeah. or you already had so many, yeah. you all know, the biases, you in shelter. Yes. They, they brought their biases in, um, yeah. as, as it's, it's as if it's just very transactional. Right. And, and mm-hmm. like removing your uterus is a transaction or, and that it should have, it would have no life term effects on someone. Um, and, and that is, that is not surprising. And this was about how many years ago? About eight years ago. Yeah. Relatively recent. Very recent. 2010, 2012, right? Eight years, 20. And, and it's, this is something that still is happening to this day that women have to fight, especially marginalized women in, in those communities, like you mentioned, have to go in and fight with the staff when it clearly says on the, on the patient bill of rights, you have a right to informed consent and informed refusal. And it seems like informed consent is the only one that they are interested in. 
And mm-hmm. even though your client said no several times, they don't hear the no, you know, no. and, and yeah. Yeah. And now we have this conversation about informed consent versus embodied consent. Yes. Right. Mm-hmm. Because I think that um, informed consent is very limited yes. and it's just like, well, I gave you the information and so now, you know, I'm going to do it either way. Yes, exactly. <laughs> like That's not really consent. That's not really consent. Exactly. And, and, and how consent does rather not having consent, how it looks like in birth is a lot of times, like you mentioned, it's here's the information as they are in the process of doing the procedure of whatever procedure that they're doing. And it's oftentimes left up to the doula to say, wait, 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 you know, I don't think she understood or did she Mm -hmm. hear and reiterating what is about to happen a lot of times. And, um, so after that, like, how did you manage processing those births on your own? Did you turn to your community? How did you help ma- navigate that? Um, at the beginning of my doula career, I didn't really have lots of mentorship. Mm-hmm. I want to say that, like, I didn't really have um, someone to turn to. Mm-hmm. And for me, the easiest or most accessible thing was to like talk to my grandma about it mm-hmm. um and she was basically like a sounding board you know she was just like hear all these stories and she'd be like yeah mija that's that's hard like yeah. that's the kind of stuff that i went through that's the kind of stuff that your mom went through that your tias went through so for her it was kind of like not surprising mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. um but later on and especially when i became a member of the new york city Dula collective mm-hmm. um I started having more mentorship and more people that I could go to and talk about these things that I would witness. Uh, But for a long time, I just sort of carried them with me. You do. And they made me really sad. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think, I think that's the part of doula work that most people don't realize is that holding space is also we're taking this in, we're experiencing it, we're witnessing it, and our body is just absorbing it and processing it. And so since once you found mentorship, um, how did you find what ways were helpful in processing? Uh, mainly talking, talking yeah. through it. Yeah. And like, you know, being able to tell the story to someone mm-hmm. and then, you know, for them to sort of like, ask questions about how I was feeling and about, you know, what was going to be my self-care plan Mm -hmm. after this birth that was difficult. Um, That was really helpful having someone to talk about and not having to like explain a lot, you know, for me, the the thing that helped me the most and that still helps me the most with self-care and processing difficult situations in birth is talking to other birth workers like being in a space with other birth workers and telling my stories and hearing their stories and just giving each other that support and that trust. Um, that's what helps me the most, really. Yeah. And so, you know, in part, you you talked about before of learning these traditions that um, if you can speak a little bit to where you're from, because people don't know where you're from and those traditions um, in the sense of what 
What was different from in your teachings and learning about birth through your traditions and customs and what we practice here in the U.S.? Mm -hmm. So I was born in Mexico City Mm -hmm. by chance. I don't really know much about Mexico City. I never grew up there. Um, I grew up in the state of Nuevo León, which is a northern state. It's a border state. I grew up in the south of Nuevo León. Uh, My family is Totonaca and also Nahuatl and also uh, basically white. Mm -hmm. Lebanese, which is via Spain, and it's white, basically. Mm -hmm. Um, So we are mixed. And then we also have um, some relatives that are Afro-descendant. So we are mixed and we have also been migrants for several generations. So on my mother's side, my great grandparents migrated from Veracruz, which is in the Gulf of Mexico, mm-hmm. um, to Nuevo León. And this was during the times of the Mexican Revolution. So they migrated and they established themselves in Nuevo León. And then also on my father's side, they are from a town called Los Ramones, which is also in Nuevo León. So that's where we grew up mostly in Nuevo León. And my great grandparents, I had the honor of growing up with them up until I was 12. And they spoke their language. They spoke Totonaca, my grandpa as well. And they kept a lot of their traditions as far as like food, birth, postpartum, um, herbal knowledge, uh, body knowledge, like doing body work um, and uh, celebrations. So I grew up, I grew up seeing a lot of that and living a lot of that, Mm -hmm. but when they passed, a lot of that was gone. And so I was not taught my, my traditional language. I was taught in Spanish and then later learned English as a migrant in the U S when I arrived to the U S it was really a huge cultural shock and so much that I really feel like it was a traumatic experience because mm-hmm. I didn't want to go to the U.S. I was taken there by my mother mm-hmm. um, as a minor. And so, so much of my life in Mexico just disappeared from my mind. Wow. It's almost like it was, I was blocked, mm-hmm. right, for several years. And I didn't uh, remember a lot of things. I didn't really want to know or remember things yeah. about life back in Mexico. I was like in that process of like, um, I have to assimilate to U.S. culture, but I don't really want to. And it was just kind of like being in limbo. Mm -hmm. And I really do feel like I experienced something that we call um, like soul loss, um, espanto or Mm -hmm. susto. Mm -hmm. It's kind of like something traumatic happens and then a part of your spirit leaves you. Yeah. And you have to retrieve it mm-hmm. through ceremony. Mm-hmm. I really do think that, that that's what happened to me. And I, exper- I was experiencing that for several years. Um, later on, when I met my partner now and started reconnecting, right? Doing the journey back yes. home and reconnecting to our traditions and our ways. Um, that's when, you know, I became pregnant and I started doing doula work. And so as a doula, I would witness, right, like what urban life in in New York City meant for birthing people, how that would influence birth, like that lifestyle and culture. 
and then what I had heard about or seen or witnessed in my family, how we saw birth. And it was like two very different worlds, right? And sometimes they would kind of come together, mm-hmm. but for the most part, it was like two very different experiences. And so I started um, in slowly incorporating the things that that I knew and that I had access to in my family, like our knowledges into my doula work, mm-hmm. right? And so for us, uh, pregnancy is all about harnessing your energy, protecting your energy, protecting belly, baby. You're susceptible to moon energy, to sun energy. You're susceptible to people that are around you. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're all about that protection and nourishment for the mother. And then birth, in birth, it's like we have like herbal allies to pull from. Uh, we have the rebozo. Um, we have um, music and prayers that we use also. And then the postpartum, it's all about um, temperature yeah. and like warming the body back up and closing the body back up mm-hmm. and sort of like grounding the birthing person back in their bodies because we do understand that the the soul leaves the body during birth yeah. and that, you know, to go retrieve your baby, mm-hmm. to go get your baby. Mm-hmm. And once you're back and you birth this baby and you're nursing, you have to have all these uh, ways, these tools, these ceremonies and rituals to bring the, the person back to their body fully and ground them. And so we do that through food through the reboso, through body work, through baños, herbal baths. Um, we also do it for the baby. The baby also has its own rituals and ceremonies and prayers that are said to the baby and herbs that I use for baby. Um, and then the placenta as well. So there's like everything, every aspect of it, there is a method and a way to go about it. And the difference in like urban life um, in the big cities is that it's very easy to become disconnected from that because of the rhythm of life. Like everything is so quick, so yes, quick. fast. Mm-hmm. Everything needs to be a quick fix. Mm-hmm. Everything is monetized, right? Um, and then when you enter the medical industrial complex, there is no acknowledgement for spirit. There is no reverence for birth. There is no honoring Uh, of birth and the birthing person. There's no respect towards the birthing person and birth as a physiological process and as a spiritual process. Mm -hmm. Um, So yeah, it's very complicated sometimes to walk into those spaces and still maintain a certain um, integrity to what you're doing and and a a type of um, sort of space around your your client, right. Or the person that you're, that you're supporting. So that was one of my greatest challenges trying to incorporate me and what I knew um, into a space that was not created for that. Yeah. Right. That was all the opposite. Yeah. Completely the opposite of all of that. And that, that I like, so when you talk about the, there's a lot of body work that is done traditionally and, Part of the body work that is done is also, um, you mentioned the rebozo, right? And you teach 
a really great workshop before the the Rebozo workshop was called um, Cultural Appropriation and Rebozo Work, right? That's mm-hmm. what it was before. Um, and now you have changed the name of it. Can you talk to um, what the current title is and why was it important to have a workshop around the Rebozo? Yeah, so now it's called What You Didn't Know About the Rebozo. Mm-hmm. And I just want to say that the reason why I changed it <laughs> is so that so that um, I could attract more of the people that it is for. Yes. And <laughs> who is it for? <laughs> <laughs> I realized that when I put in the title Cultural Appropriation and Rebozo Work, a lot of people are like, Mm, I don't think I want to talk about that. <laughs> yes. Yeah. 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 And so I'm like, okay, I'll just make it more mysterious. Yes. Um, so that you come and you're like, oh, I want to learn some rebozo things. And it's like, boom. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. Why was it important so, to teach this workshop? Okay. So it actually all started when I was a member of the New York City Duet Collective. Mm-hmm. And I always tell this story in the in the class yes. anyway. Um, so I'm fine with telling it. I don't tell anyone's names. Mm-hmm. I was at a mentor meeting. I was at my mentor's house. We had a, a mentor men- mentees meeting. Uh, and there, most of the people in the room were white. Mm-hmm. They were white doulas. Mm-hmm. I think it was like only my mentor and I who were people of color there. And we were talking about the reposo. We were talking about the things that we all carried in our doula bag mm-hmm. and for what. And so the reposo came up obviously. And I was at that time, at that point in my doula career, I was really feeling like I was finding out about, you know, the issue of cultural appropriation within the Rebozo. And I was not happy about it. I was very resentful about it. I was very angry and upset about it. I was like, why is this happening? Like, why? And so going into this meeting, someone brought it up, a white doula, and they wanted to hear from me. They wanted for me to share uh, or give a workshop on the Rebozo. But the intention was, how can we use the Rebozo with our clients? How can we apply it uh, in, in birth? Yeah, as, as a tool, but not no, no history behind no. it. Yes. <laughs> and so I was I got really upset with that question. And I probably shouldn't have reacted this way, but I got really upset. And I straight up told everyone in the room, like, well, I don't feel like sharing. Like, what do I, why should I? Why do I have to? Mm-hmm. I don't have to. No one is entitled to anything. No one is entitled to to learning about the rebozo, um, especially if you're white. And so this person's response was, um, well, you know, this is something that benefits a lot of people that we want to learn about. And if you won't share about it, someone else will. Like, if you don't want to you know, share with us, we're going to find someone else who's going to give the workshop and we're going to learn anyway. Mm. Um, But if you think that you have a different perspective on it or something important, then you should be the one to teach us. Right. Yeah. (laughs) And so, and so I really thought about it and I, uh, it was on my mind for several years. My mentor highly suggested that I created a whole workshop about it. Mm -hmm. And I came to the, to the conclusion that, you know, uh, within my community and within my family, I am not someone, I don't position myself as a teacher. Yes. And so, and I'm also not an expert mm-hmm. on uh, body work. Mm-hmm. Um, 
there's things that I know and things that I have done, been done to myself um, and that I understand that I've been practicing for a long time. But in no way do I position myself as someone who teaches, who uh, mentors others, because I do feel that for that, you need a lot of years of experience. Mm -hmm. And either an elder gives you permission to do that, passes something on to you, or your community requests you as such. And so at that time, I was like, no, I'm not going to come up with a Rebozo workshop because that's that's not my focus that's mm-hmm. not something that I know. Like I know how to use the Reboso in a different context. Yeah. Um, and what they, what people want in the U.S. is they want the Reboso to be focused on birth. Birth, only as right? birth. Mm-hmm. Only for birth. As if the Reboso was invented for that. Yes. And it really was not. Mm-hmm. And so for me, it's like I know the Reboso on a daily life context. Mm-hmm. I can tell you uh, how it evolved. And this is what we talk about in the class. We talk about all the ancestors of the Reboso, how it evolved through colonization um, up until today and what it looks like today. All the things that you can use a Reboso for that are not birth related. And then we talk about self-care, how you can care for your body and care for your for your emotional body and spiritual body with the Reboso. Um, we talk about that. But definitely... The rebozo is not mainly for birth. birth. And that's one of the things that I really wanted to clarify in the workshop. And also that the rebozo is not inspired in Spanish mandillas, mm. which is a story that I see a lot of rebozo trainers um, give in their classes that the Spaniards brought it. We saw it and we were like, oh, that's cute. Let me use that for, for this. And then we sort of like put our touch on it. Mm-hmm. And then it became what we know More now. More erasure of history and culture. Yeah. Yes. Yes. It's it's huge eraser. And so we look at the decolonial story mm-hmm. of the Reboso. But also I let people know that like me for my births, I didn't use my Reboso. Most of the births that I've attended as a doula, I don't use the Reboso yeah. because uh, it does come in handy in specific situations, but before you pull out a rebozo to use on someone, there are other things that you need to be looking at, mm-hmm. other factors to consider. And for example, um, what is the baby's position? I've seen doulas and I've heard um, stories of doulas using the rebozo on people without even realizing that it was affecting the baby's position in a negative way mm-hmm. or without considering like, well, what's happening to the birthing person's body, to yes. their ligaments, yes. right? To their muscles, because there are things that you can do with your hands and with movement um, without having to use that. Yeah. Sometimes it's something emotional or something spiritual. And so as doulas, we are uh, at a birth as gatekeepers, yeah. right? We are gatekeepers and we are um, directing spiritual energies mm-hmm. that are happening, right? We're directing energy and we are uh, manipulating that energy, yeah. right? Because we are creating a certain kind of space for our clients. And so all of that can be done without the rebozo. The rebozo is an intervention. Mm-hmm. And we don't realize that, right? Yeah. My friend Maite who is a sobadora, always says that. I love Maite, by the way. I want to have her on as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And so if we are there to prevent interventions, 
um, because maybe that's what our client wants, right? Maybe they tell us, I really want you to help me um, stay on track with my birth plan. I really want to avoid an epidural or I really would like to avoid uh, an induction, et cetera, et cetera. And we know this. We know that we're walking into a space like a hospital where interventions are just like all the time, they're mm -hmm. protocols. Um, why would we pull out something to do on our client, like the reboso, that is also an intervention without considering all these other options first, yes. right? And so the reboso can definitely be very, very helpful in like very specific situations. And after you have looked at other options and you've exhausted all resources, then you use your rebozo. Um, but that's also something that needs to be learned with many years of experience exactly. under the supervision mm -hmm. of a midwife that knows exactly what they're doing. And they're teaching you this in person, yeah. right? Because virtual stuff is now very common yeah. and you cannot you learn cannot that learn. virtually. Mm -hmm. So yes, that's what I have to say about why it would be uh, why it was important for me to to offer this this class online yeah I find that that's one of the questions that is on the list of questions that comes up when questions to ask your doulas you know they're like what is in your bag and I tell my I tell my prospective clients or people that I'm going to be supporting that it doesn't matter what I have in my bag the most important thing that I bring to a birth in my hands, because mm -hmm. I have a reboso. And like you mentioned, it is not something that I'm going to use on every person because the energy, as you mentioned, can also wind up in your reboso, right? And if you're not doing the things that you need to, you're transferring that energy. So I think a lot of people feel that I have a reboso as that's something that should be in a doula bag, and then mm -hmm. I have to use it at every birth because I was taught this training. It's like aromatherapy. I mm -hmm. have a lot of aromatic oils, but I don't use them at every single birth. And it's not something that goes with every single person. So when you teach the workshop and you, you, you explain this, do, do you find that they, they have a better understanding afterwards that stop pulling out your reboso? You know, I, I use my reboso, as you mentioned, more so for me at birth. Um, I use it to help keep me warm. I use it to bind my womb. Um, but do you find that people are like, oh, yeah, I'm not going to pull out my reboso every time? Yes, it's a mixed response. Mm -hmm. um, some folks have it very clear and they're like, oh, OK, yeah, I don't feel like this is for me. I don't feel that I should be doing this. Um some, a lot of people tell me, yeah, I had a lot of doubts. I felt uncomfortable, uh, but I didn't know why. And I think now I understand why. Mm -hmm. And then some folks are just kind of like, I'm just going to keep doing my thing, you yeah. know? And a few of them have asked me, what do I think if I think that they should continue to practice with it? And I never tell folks like, yes or no, do it. Don't do it. Um, I leave it up to them. I really do uh, trust that we can all be uh, responsible for ourselves and be mm -hmm. self-accountable. Mm -hmm. um, but I think that if you are even asking the question or like wondering about it, maybe you shouldn't, right? 
Yeah, I yeah. agree. And how has the response been overall with teaching the course? Because I, I sat in on when it was named um, cultural appropriation, and I, uh, I got there. I got there a little late towards the end, but um, I just recall you really hitting home the fact that this is not for you if you are not a person who it it's, it speaks to, right? And just to be doing it for the sake of doing it is not something that needs to be done, but also understanding the history of where it has come from and paying homage to the fact that if you are a white person, this is not your history. And if another white person is teaching you this course, that is not their history either. And there needs to be a deeper meaning and understanding behind this work of, yes. of using the reboso. And so do you find that now that you've changed the name, you have more people signing up for the reboso workshop? Well, yes. I mean, I don't think that it has dramatically changed that. Okay. Like itself. Um, also, one of the reasons why I also changed it is because I'm, I will presenting, I will be presenting this, this class at a conference in Brazil. Wonderful. And like a virtual conference in Brazil. And the person that invited me to it sort of gave me a breakdown of the situation in Brazil, which is kind of the same, you know, she's like in Brazil, there's a lot of white doulas, a lot of um, uh, white Brazilians mm -hmm. doulas that are using the reboso because of this midwife, uh, this white midwife who took it there. And they really don't care to hear the conversation around cultural appropriation yeah. and social justice and reparations and all of that. They just, um, they, it's very common for every doula to have a reboso and to mm -hmm. use it. And you apply the techniques that they've learned in um, this midwife's reboso workshop. And so she's like, I think that if we call it something different, um, they will definitely sign up because okay. they want to learn more about it. Mm -hmm. um, but it's definitely not what they're going to be expecting. Yeah. <laughs> so that's another reason why I changed it. I was like, she's right. Yeah. yeah. Like a lot of folks will sign up just wanting to get more. More, get more. exactly. Learn other ways. Yeah. I mean, that's really the the attitude nowadays, right? Of like extracting and and that's a, a big problem because I feel like it's a reflection of like how we treat earth too. Yes. Like the way that you treat women and the way that we treat um, black communities, indigenous communities is the way that we treat earth, yeah. right? It's like on earth, we're like always extracting resources for our benefit and always taking, taking, taking and not necessarily giving back. Mm -hmm. And that's the same behavior that we... Um, do with each other, right? Yeah. With our, with our compañeras and compañeros, mm -hmm. whether they're black, indigenous, if there's something that they have that white folks want, there's always an attitude of like, Oh, I want that. But there's never like a reflection on like, but what am I giving back? Right. And should I really take this? Mm -hmm. Can I look into my own story, into my own lineage, into my own culture to see if there's something there that could also help me in the same way? Um, and that I always propose that in yeah. the class, you know, before you even continue to take from our communities, before you even uh, think about extracting more, 
what is there in your own lineage, right? What are the medicines that your people have? Because we're, we all give birth, right? White people give birth. Black people have been giving birth. Everyone in the world gives birth. So I'm sure that for white folks, there must be something, Mm -hmm. some kind of medicine, some kind of textile, something that they can use and benefit in a similar way in which how the Raboso benefits. So that's one point. And the other is that um, a lot of folks think that because someone in the U.S., if you say I'm indigenous or I'm brown or I'm a person of color or I am Latina, Latino, that that is an automatic pass, right? Yeah. Even if I look white as milk, mm-hmm. right? And so I really put that into context for people because when I say indigenous people or indigenous communities, I really ask them, uh, what do you think of when I say that? What is the picture, the image that comes mm-hmm. to your head when I say indigenous communities? Um, and a lot of them don't really know how to answer. Yeah. And I, I propose to them um, to look into, like, for example, the people who are serving your food at restaurants, the people who are cleaning up your homes, the people that are taking care of your children, picking up your trash, cleaning the subway. Um, a lot of them are undocumented migrants. The people that are, are in the border, at the U.S. border, U.S.-Mexico border, uh, locked up in cages. Uh, the people that are getting persecuted by ICE and getting deported. Like, mm-hmm. that is an indigenous person, yes. right? Those are Those indigenous, are indigenous people. people. Those are the indigenous communities that I am talking about. They left their villages. They left their little towns, uh, their families, their traditions, customs, and migrated over here. And they brought a lot with them. And so a lot of them are healers. A lot of them are people who know about the Reboso, who have had it in their family forever, who know how to use herbal medicine, um, who have their own traditions around birthing. And we, I think that in the U.S., we don't realize that that's um, undocumented migrants. Yeah. Like, that's who they are. Mm-hmm. And also... Um, when you come over here to Mexico and you're on this side and you see the dynamics of class and race, um, it's very different. So over here, like an indigenous person is mainly defined by the fact that they speak their language. They speak their indigenous language and they live within their community. Right. But a lot of us have different realities and have different situations. Some of us live in our communities and don't speak the language or we speak the language and don't live in our communities or we are now learning our languages because we didn't learn it as kids um, or we are categorized by the way that we look, right? Regardless of where you live or what language you speak. And in the U.S., it's not like that. In the U.S., the conversation around indigeneity is very poor and it's very uninformed. And so it's very easy for anyone to say, uh, I'm from Mexico. Yes. I can teach you about the Reboso. Mm-hmm. But we have white people in Mexico too, right? And so my definition is always, whoever taught you this, like where do they live? What do they speak? What was their upbringing uh, in regards to the Reboso? What are the birthing practices in their family, right? 
that's really what can give you like a background and a full picture on who is this person that is passing on this knowledge to you. Because otherwise, my my conclusion would be that, you know, a lot of Reboso trainers, and I say quote unquote trainers, that are in the U.S. teaching this um, are not really indigenous, no. right? Like they might have a Spanish last name or they might identify as Hispanic or Latina. And in reality, they were born and raised in the U.S., with a lot of privilege, they are citizens, they look very white, maybe they have their white husband, et cetera. And that's a, that's a very different reality. Yes. Not that it's wrong, it's just very different. Mm-hmm. Um, and also in community, we don't learn through workshops and certifications, right? There's no such thing in indigenous community, there's no such thing as a reboso workshop or a reboso training. I always tell folks that, if they ever come down to Mexico um, and they want to learn something from someone, they're going to have to stay and live near them Mm -hmm. so that they can go to their homes and help out, cook, clean, take care of the kids, feed the animals. When it's the time of the siembra of planting corn, go and help. When it's the time for harvesting, go and help. Because within that daily living, um, the the teachings will come Mm -hmm. and the knowledge will be shared. Mm -hmm. And that's really how you learn something in community through everyday living and through practicing. Um, But it's never like a a three-day intensive that you pay for and then you get your paper and a permission to go and practice. No, no. I like that. And that was the one thing that I had loved about the, the workshop that you taught, that you spoke about being in community in a way that we don't think about over here in the, in the U.S. Um, of community is not just of taking, right? It is of pouring back and filling back up the cup. Um, and I think that is something I had just, um, I did, I recorded a little, video about that same thing of uh, people who are, who come to the community and say, um, post this for me, do that for me, please um, get this word out about this, but there's no pouring back into the community. And we really need to stop thinking about what my community can do for me and what I can also do for my community. And it doesn't always have to be, like you say, monetize. It can be, you know, little things, maybe promoting that person or thinking of that person when you wouldn't normally think of that person to refer them or their services, as opposed to you taking that on for yourself because they've done something. And I think, especially around doula work, we don't, that, that, a lot of times I'm seeing it does not happen in that way. It's just like, do this thing for me. But there's not that community, the true community of like, let's go have lunch and just talk. You know, I, I used to tell people all the time that, you know, you want to know somebody, invite them out to have coffee. And see, you know, if your spirit is drawn to someone, meet people. That's how you're going to meet people. And I'm always telling people I'm available for coffee, you know, or tea or whatever, just to meet people and see, you know, see how we work. And I really, I really appreciate you for bringing that out and saying that because I think more people need to hear that message. Thank you for that. The next segment that we get into is called Daily Inspiration. So I want to know, what's your favorite scent? My favorite scent? Yeah. (laughs) 
<laughs> no, whatever comes to your mind, it doesn't. <laughs> My husband was really cracking me up because um, we're always talking about um, body smell, yes. like what your body smell says about what you eat mm -hmm. um, and what you need in yes. your body at the time. Yeah. So uh, TMI. Recently, I've been, I've been, my body smell has been very much like onions and garlic, mm -hmm. right? Like I smell myself and I'm like, oh my God, I smell like onions. I smell my sweat or my armpits. Yes. It smells like onions and garlic. And he's like, you eat a lot of that. Like, <laughs> maybe, like, he talks from onions for a little bit. Yeah. Um, I would say that my favorite scent is, um, you know, that smell right before it's about to rain. Yes like wet soil mm -hmm, or mm -hmm. like humidity yeah um, you just smell it in the air and you're like oh shit it's about to rain yeah yes exactly <laughs> yeah. i like that smell i really do and then afterwards when the the soil is really wet and you smell that wet soil mm -hmm. i really love that okay that's a nice one the yeah the right before the rain that is a particular scent that you just it's hard to explain what it is like you you just have to know and i yeah i like that one too what's a book film show or podcast that is inspiring you right now so i'm reading this book um on traditional totonaca medicine mm -hmm. and it's reminding me a lot of my great grandma doña tula And it's really inspiring because it's a reminder of like how we have to be very um, conscious and aware and careful of how we walk on earth, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Like everything, everything has a spirit. Everything yes. is energy. Mm -hmm. So one of the main biggest things that I'm learning through this book, like sort of relearning or remembering through it that my great grandma would always talk about and that the people here in the town where I live with my husband, um, this is his town, his ancestral land. Uh, they, they, they talk about it in the same way. Uh, they talk about the spirits of the mountains. Mm -hmm. And so in our language, uh, we have two a feminine and masculine per se, because there's more genders than yes. that. But we have Kiwi Kolo, which is the spirit of the, of El Monte of the mountain. And then the counterpart, which would be Kiwi Chat. And here they call it the, the same energy. They call it Tapanyuko. Mm -hmm. And it's like the spirit that takes care of the mountains, but also like the deer and animals, plants, everything. And so I'm reading this book and I'm just finding all the similarities between like what I learned within my family. Um, even though we were removed from our ancestral land mm -hmm. and then now here in my partner's ancestral land um how they view it the same way they just call it a different name mm -hmm. but it's the same thing and so yeah i'm really loving that book and for a show i'm watching these videos on facebook of uh her name is nancy risol she is quechua from ecuador And she's a very famous person, apparently. She still dresses in her traditional clothing. And she gives you a tour of her home in the mountains and her animals and everything. But she's very funny. Funny in a way that is scary. Because through her humor, you can see that she's very sharp and mm -hmm. very smart mm -hmm. and sarcastic. Her humor is so sarcastic and dark. 
Um, and she's just very proud of like her culture and who she is and her language. And she also has a TV show with like a, a white Ecuadorian. And it just, to me, she's just like very dignified and very funny. And like, she knows how to move in both worlds. Mm, very easily. Mm-hmm. And I really love, yeah, I'm having a lot of fun watching her episodes. You'll have to send me the link. I'd, I'd love to, to see that. I'd really love to see that. Yeah. I'll share them with you. Okay, yes, great. You can have laugh a lot. <laughs> okay, great. That's what that's yes. what we need right now is a lot of laughter. And some humor. I know, I know. Good. It's so serious. So what's a quote that inspires you? A quote. I saw it somewhere and it's been on my mind this past few weeks. If it's not accessible to the poor, it's not revolutionary. Mm. And it really does make me question myself yeah. and what I do, like, am I accessible to the poor? Yeah. Am I accessible to people? You know, it's like, I have Wi-Fi, I yeah. have a computer, I speak English, I still earn dollars, yeah. you know, and I, I give this classes online that are accessible to people with the same privileges, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Who also have internet, who also have computers. Yeah. Um, and I'm just wondering, like, how can I make my work accessible to more people, um, I already don't charge a lot of money. I charge like $50 to take the course and there's scholarships available and a lot, a lot of people have taken it for free. Um, but yeah, I, I'm just thinking about that constantly. Yeah. That's been on my mind the whole time. If it's yeah. not accessible to the poor, it's not revolutionary. Yeah. So I'm like, is my work revolutionary enough? You know? Yeah. Like, yeah, I am mean, I just talking to white people with privilege yeah. or can I also talk to my own people that don't hop on the internet to take these classes? Yeah. You know? But I think I, I, that's a great one too. But I think where you might not be, you might not see the revolution of your work is in the, when I tell someone after I've taken a course, what, spoke to me about that course and they tell someone that same thing. So there is a connection to the revolution because word of mouth and stories is how things get passed along and we're talking about it. And there are people that are talking about it that you might not be aware of and offering scholarships, I think is a great, great way as well, because those people then take it, right? You offered them something for free and now they're going to take it out into the world. So whereas you don't see it immediately being tangible, it's happening. So you are, you are doing revolutionary work. You definitely are. Yeah. Don't be Thank hard you. on yourself. You're doing great. <laughs> you, we, we have that enough. So the last segment. It's a birth story. And if you would like to share the your birth story with us. Like how I was born? Or, or, or how, your, kids were- how your kids were born. Like, yeah. What were those experiences? The first one was born inside the sweat lodge. We call it the mascal. Mm-hmm. A, um, for folks who may not know, it's a small structure sort of shaped like a half circle mm-hmm. on the made on the floor. And here in Mexico, the traditional temazcal is made out of clay. Uh, Sometimes we'll also make it out of branches if we're making like an individual one for one person or two people only. But it's usually made out of clay and it has has volcanic rock that you heat up in fire 
and then throw water at it and it steams up uh-huh. it gives out steam so you're in there completely dark in darkness with the steam and so it's a uh, it's therapeutic yeah uh it's used for like countless medicinal purposes and you know ailments and chronic pains and but also um spiritual ailments and emotional ailments so my daughter was born inside the mascal the first the first kid um she's seven and we didn't like close it to be dark and we didn't make it too hot we only put like four little stones in there mm-hmm. um i had a midwife um she's a midwife in new york she's from peru and it seemed like she was very much on board with the whole plan mm-hmm. you know uh up until like the second when i was pushing and she kind of like didn't want to do it anymore i was in my bedroom okay. and my doula was actually pretty cool about like pushing through and sticking to the plan uh-huh. and she was like no 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 let's walk to the tamascal to the swedlach so we walked and i remember it was raining outside and i was going you know basically with only a shirt on and my butt was all in the air <laughs> and um the we had to go through this, these stairs to get to the backyard where the sweat lodge was and my my midwife was just so scared that i would like fall or slip or something and then we finally made it inside and i just went on all fours and i remember people telling me to like scoot over a little bit more and i was just like nope this is where i'm staying like <laughs> baby's coming out now yes. <laughs> and i had the i had that that kind of situation where you're at five centimeters um and then less than 30 20 minutes later you're pushing a baby out mm, right yeah it just sort of like boom happens so i had been pushing i had been like feeling the the rectal pressure for a while and my midwife just kind of didn't believe it she was like hmm are you really pushing i don't know and me giving birth the first time i didn't exactly know yeah. that like uh what was happening but i just knew it i was like this 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 baby's about to come out mm-hmm. And uh, so I'm in the sweat lodge on all fours. And I think I pushed like two, th- two times and she slid out. I didn't even really feel the ring of fire. She just mm-hmm. kind of like, like slid out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I asked everyone, like, when they told me that the baby was born, I was like, what, really? Like, <laughs> how? <laughs> and I turned around and they handed me the baby. Um, and just like, I was in shock. I was like, I thought I was going to feel ring of fire, all these things. And no, it was very quick. Um, Then my second baby was born in the water and she was an unassisted birth. Mm -hmm. I was in New Jersey, um, no longer had access to Obamacare. Mm -hmm. Um, It was very, just very weird times to give birth at home because uh, there was this whole issue with insurances where you didn't know if they were going to cover home birth or not. Yes. So you basically had to be prepared with money to yeah. pay your midwife in case, you know, insurance would not kick in. Mm-hmm. So I decided to not stress about it and just let it go and not have a midwife. Mm-hmm. I was like, I'm not even going to jump on that whole, you know, stress wagon yes. of like money and the midwife, the insurance I'm just not going to have a midwife. Mm-hmm. And so my second baby was born in Jersey city in the water with two doulas present, my husband, my friend who was taking care of my sec, my first kid and yeah, no assistance. And she 
took longer than the first one. Mm -hmm. So it's not true that your second that one's always quicker. quicker. Yeah, that's true as well. Sometimes they take longer because mm -hmm. she was bigger. She was a almost nine pound baby. Um, it took a lot of physical effort to get that out of my body. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I remember I had a lot of, um, uh, I just didn't want to birth the placenta. It was taking me a long time to birth the placenta. And Chikome, Jesse was one of my doulas. I love Jesse. And I remember her, like, they were telling me, like, come on, mama, you have to push this placenta out. And I was on the bed, just like defeated and like mm -hmm. no energy, so tired. I was just like, no, I'm done, please. And they're like, no, like, this placenta needs to come out. So she asked me a question that was like a perfect cue for me mm -hmm. she was like what are you holding on to yeah like just let it go what are you mm -hmm. holding on to mm -hmm. and that's when i was like oh shit i don't know what it is but i don't want to be holding on to anything like let me just get this placenta out uh -huh. and i got up and with one put when i felt the surge come i just pushed it out and she had the bowl right there mm -hmm. and caught it and we cut the cord with a piece of obsidian mm -hmm. which is a it's like some kind fossilized of, yes. lava mm -hmm. and it we we believe that it has a hot temperature to it because it comes from lava anyway yeah. so temperature right warmth is really important in birth not just for the birthing person but also for the baby yeah we don't want any coldness to go in the baby so when you cut with like um surgical steel for example that's of a cold nature yeah so we decided to cut with obsidian And yeah, I mean, just stayed home. <laughs> yeah. The process of registering that baby was hell. It was really difficult. Yeah. But we did. Yeah. 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 They were both beautiful stories. Thank you so much for sharing. I really you. appreciate your time and you, you taking the time to share all of the great work that you're doing and your traditions and customs. Thank you. Thank you for being a part of my podcast. Thank you for inviting me. I'm really honored. Oh, definitely. I can't wait for you to hear it. I can't wait for everyone else to hear it as well. It was a wonderful story. Thanks, Monse. <laughs> Thanks so much. Thank right. you. Yes. Thank you. Um, you have any other? I want to say that, that right now, that the two virtual offerings that I oh, have yes. mm -hmm. are one on the Reboso, mm -hmm. what you didn't know about the Reboso, and also a free birthing class it's called free birthing from an indigenous perspective and it's basically um for anyone who is planning on having an unassisted birth and anyone who wants to support people in unassisted birth so it's for birth workers and for pregnant people um you don't have to be pregnant to take it maybe you're just thinking of conceiving and you're mm -hmm. considering free birth It gives you a lot of like resources and, and like advice on like the things to have ready, how to prepare, all of that. Oh, that's great. But also it focuses largely on like birth as a ceremony, mm -hmm. right? Like the spirituality of pregnancy, birth and postpartum mm -hmm. for the parents and for baby. And according to uh, Totonaka Nahuatl ways, the way that I learned it. And yeah, it's, it's, also available online. I offer this every two weeks. Every two weeks. I was just about to ask how often you offer. And where can people find you? 
So on Facebook, I am as Monse Olmos, which is my name. Mm -hmm. And on Instagram, you can find me as Mujer de la Tierra. Um, I only use those two social media platforms. Great. I also have a lot of content on Patreon, patreon.com slash Mujer de la Tierra. There's more content there as far as birth, um, food, music, traveling, just a lot of things that I'm interested in and that I'm doing. Um, you can find it there. Great. Yeah. That's wonderful. I will definitely list those in the show notes as well and on all the platforms when I post them on social media. Thank you. Thank you so much for being here and being part of part of my podcast. I hope to see you soon you. the next time I come to Mexico. Gracias. Thanks for listening to the Clear Birth Podcast. Please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. You can find me on Instagram at the Clear Birth Podcast. If you want to send me an email, you can reach me at the Clear Birth Podcast at gmail.com. Adios. Hasta luego. Goodbye. Until next time.